It's time for Black and White, a show that wants to bring all of us together talking again. It's time to hear from people who only want to deal with facts. It's time for you to re-engage in America. It's time for... Welcome back. And on very short notice, we have a gentleman who's been kind and generous with his time for our program, John O'Connor, um, former prosecutor and uh, uh, an expert on a lot of things. And I invited him to come on and talk about since today was the day that Roe v. Wade was overturned. Um, so, John, what I wanted to ask you was, have you heard any pundits practicing law that shouldn't be practicing law in trying to interpret what this means out of the court? Well, one of the things that we I haven't talked to anybody about is the question that is a very interesting question as to whether or not if abortion is outlawed in your own state and the young woman goes to another state to have the abortion, whether upon her return she could be prosecuted uh, for murder or whatever the crime would be for not having a legal abortion. Uh, my answer to that is that we this whole decision of overturning Roe v. Wade is based on federalism, that each state should determine its own laws on this Mm -hmm. And by the democratic process. So let's say you're in, let's say Missouri, it, it, abortion's illegal, but it's not in Arkansas. Okay, you're in Arkansas, you go to Missouri, have an abortion that is legal there, you come back. Now, are you going to really seriously prosecute that woman for murder that was legal in the state she went to, to, to perform the act? I say no, and I think it's very unwise for, for someone to try to stretch its jurisdiction beyond elastic limits. Not only that, you have another constitutional problem. First of all, you have a constitutional problem that you're prosecuting actions that are occurring in another jurisdiction. That's number one. Number two, you are probably uh, putting a burden on interstate commerce. Uh, you are basically punishing that girl for traveling interstate, and you're putting a burden on her. Let me give you another hypothetical, Dan. Let's assume that she lived in Missouri, had the abortion, and then went to Arkansas right after that. Can you prosecute her then? No, I don't think Arkansas would say you could. No, we're pro only prosecuting the people that live in Arkansas, go to Missouri, and come back. Well, wait a second. Now, does that make sense? Two girls have an abortion on the same day in Missouri. Both of them travel back to Arkansas on the same day. One is guilty of murder and one's not. Okay, so I think it would. It, a lot of this is about wisdom, and I don't think it's wise for these states, no matter how ardently pro-life they may be, and how much people may credit them for that. Let's not uh, be as unprincipled as uh, as other people in trying to uh, take things beyond their elastic limits. That's the way I'd express it. Yeah, I, I was thinking as you were saying that, John. Um... There's another another set of laws here, I think, that would come into play, and that's patient confidentiality. That's another one. How is how is the law, the local sheriff or whoever, going to know which women have had left the state, had an abortion, and came back? Because the the medical people have confidentiality; they can't disclose that the that the, they're treated a woman for a an abortion, whether it was good or bad. Um, well, that's right. And you bring up another issue. Um, 
And that's where you get into this um, uh, Griswold v. Connecticut. One of the whole ideas of Griswold v. Connecticut was not just that there's privacy involved, and that's the constitutional decision that said that contraception couldn't be prosecuted. The real question is how do you how do you uh, enforce a contraception law? Do you got to get do you get in the bedroom? Do you look around for condoms? Uh, so when you want to prosecute a crime like this, like you say, do you breach plain of uh, uh, patient confidentiality? What do you do? Uh, do you take a picture of the woman when she leaves the state and then when she comes back, she doesn't have the baby bump anymore? Is that the way you prove it? Uh, so, and how do you know what happened to the baby? How do you know it wasn't uh, a miscarriage? The only wow. way you prove it is by getting, as you point out, Dan, is by getting those medical records. And that, to me, uh, tramples on various rights. If we are going to be a conservative republic that respects the rights of citizens, I'm not so sure that's a good idea. Well, I would I would agree with you, John, and, and I'm thinking in terms of of looking at it from the standpoint of um, why would anybody, either side of the equation, want to write these kinds of laws? I mean, it, it doesn't. I can't come up with a logical reason. But I, speaking of laws, I want to ask you a question. The way, and I'm not a lawyer. I'm only a partially practicing attorney. You're a real attorney. Um, I'm playing an attorney on television. You are a real attorney on you television. You stayed at the Holiday Inn Express last night, so that's good. <laughs> so my question is, my interpretation of the document is that the Supreme Court has spoken to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade. And in so doing said that the decision on abortion should go back to the state legislature, which is the most direct representation of the people, and the people can speak as to what they want to have happen. So you're correct. That's a correct rationale. So the the um, the rights of both sides here again here I'm practicing law again. The rights of both sides are limited to the highest court in the state. And that could be the state Supreme Court. And that that there is, I should say never, unlikely an appeal process to the US Supreme Court, since the US Supreme Court has already opined that it's a state issue, not a federal issue. So they would refuse to take the case. Well, they'd refuse to take it anyway because they only take, uh, they have selective jurisdiction. It's rare that they take up cases. They only do so for broad purposes to enunciate a rule and so forth. Uh, so yeah, you're probably right, Dan, just on prudential uh, grounds, they probably would not take any case like that. So that the, 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 the people on both sides of the issue in a state as the state legislature is deciding what the rules will be for its state and passes legislation signed by the governor, the most likely scenario is that the maximum court of appeal is the state Supreme Court. Right, correct. Okay. That's correct. And, and the likelihood of the Supreme Court getting involved uh, or the lower district courts, appellate courts, knowing that the Supreme Court is not going to take a case because they've already applied um, 
it is going to be the local jurisdiction in the state of where the legislature have passed passed the law. Well, that's right. And I don't think you have original jurisdiction in the uh, district courts, the federal courts anyway, because what well, it's a state matter. It would be a state law, uh, an in-state citizen, not citizens of a different state. And so therefore, uh, I think it is a state law matter. And frankly, if you're going to follow the whole concept of uh, federalism, you ought to, the, the prosecution should remain within that state. Now, what do you do with that? I, I don't know where that goes is another matter as you, I think are bringing up. When you think about, um, when you think about what we just talked about, um, the, the court, um, the court's decision, um, and they were very clear, again, going back to the document, the things that the left has been saying that would happen, that gay marriage would be getting, would be eliminated and all these things will happen because of the court's feeling uh, motion on Roe versus Wade. Yet in the document, the court was very specific telling people not to interpret that these provisions would apply against any other provisions than what, what is stated. That's right. That's right. They were very careful to limit this to Roe v. Wade. And that's what's, and what we have here, Dan, is a situation in which the court should never have jumped into this in 1973. They thought they were wiser than everybody. They were going to come in and really the Roe v. Wade decision is looks like, as they said, as Alito said in the opinion, looks like something a legislature would come up with. It was, well, in the first trimester, you can do this. The second, you can do this, but you can't do this. And you can do a little of that. And then the third. So it's like you're bringing up a legislative scheme and they shouldn't be doing that. And they think they're going to put this thing to bed. Um, it, it was wise. And now what happens is, though, here's the problem. And it's a very legitimate one. 50 years, you know, people have said this is the law of the land. Now, they don't know. They're not, they don't go to law school. They don't have their law professor tell them why Roe was so poorly decided. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg thought it was an abomination uh, right. from a legal point of view. But now what happens is everybody thinks that this is the law of the land, and now it gets taken away by the Supreme Court, and people feel um, divested of a right. And that's what sort of, to me, here's what I would say. I think the I, th I think they're perfectly correct in the decision if they want to just rip the Band-Aid off altogether right now. I'm not suggesting that they're wrong. I'm suggesting they may not be wise. Uh, they could have upheld the Mississippi law <clears throat> without getting into the whole issue of first trimester because Mississippi's law was the first trimester case. And there's a very good way to justify that dividing line, especially even under Alito's own theory uh, and his reasoning. His reasoning is that you can reach, if, if, if abortion somehow was protected as part of, quote, ordered liberty throughout Western tradition, whether American or in Western society, then the Roe v. Wade decision will stand up under the 14th Amendment, which generally has what they call substantive due process. That is to say, a general provision that 
that the states cannot arbitrarily unreasonable put reasonably put restraints on its citizens. It's nothing more than that. So it's a very broad principle. And so to find out if the road decision makes any sense in Western tradition, they went back through history and said that, oh no, there's never been a protection of abortion. That's not quite so. I think good historians would argue with that point at least up to the point of quickening of the fetus. St. Augustine, it's not murder until there's quickening in the fetus. St. Thomas Aquinas, there's not murder until there's quickening in the fetus. The first church lawyers, um, uh, now I'm forgetting, uh, de Bracton, and there's another one, and I forget his name, in the 12th and uh, 13th century. Then you go to uh, Blackstone in 1781, 1765, when he writes his treatise on English law, he finds a distinction between killing the fetus before quickening and killing him after. Now, all my point is, is, and, and Alito treats that, but just sort of sloughs over, gives it the back of his hand. He doesn't get into the people I'm talking about, and I'll remember that first uh, <laughs> one later, but Anyway, the first lawyer, church lawyer, who was brilliant. But my point is, is that you could have used that as a basis to say, look, this is a serious question. We don't need to decide it now. Let's put it off to another day. Now, if you do that, maybe we see where the chips fall. We see what happens, how people uh, end up resolving these issues over time. And, um, and maybe that's the way to do it. I, that's what I didn't like about this because there are a number of people, I may not ag- agree with them philosophically, that feel that there's this right in stone and now it's taken away. There, there's something that doesn't sit that well uh, with me on this. It's one thing to overturn Plessy v. Ferguson on uh, separate but equal treatment of blacks and whites. That's just so outrageous that you have to say, Brown v. Board of Education justifiably overturned that precedent. So I I do have problems with it. I think you've got to be, if you accuse the other side of being too too radical in its uh, legal uh, philosophy, then you don't want to be equally radical or even half as radical. So that's my issue with it. I think they're probably right. I think the case was wrongly decided, Roe v. Wade. But I just wish there would have been a little more caution and prudence. And I think that's, I haven't read Robert's concurrence yet, but I understand he does that exact same thing. He upholds Dobbs, but does not adopt the rationale of the other five justices. I would have liked to have seen one more justice join Roberts, and then we could have a good old time talking about this for the next few years. Well, we're going uh, um, to continue this fascinating conversation with John O'Connor. John, how can people follow you? Well, the best place to go now is I've just come out with a book, Dan, called The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. You can get it only on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. It's the deal we made with them. Uh, but it is the first book that takes you through what really happened in Watergate. 50 years, we haven't had it. And secondly, it's the first book that combined with that takes you through the Washington Post false journalism in relationship to what really happened. I wrote another book about the post false journalism called Postgate, but this 
combines what really happened with the journalism. And if the post investigative project was flawed, materially flawed, what does, and it's the basis for all modern journalism, what does that tell us if our founding story is flawed? Anyway, the mysteries of Watergate, uh, hope, hope people can pick it up, pick up a copy. We'll be right back with John O'Connor. Welcome back. For 200 million Americans see the damage of escalating gas prices on their families at every fill-up. The coming midterm election will give these hundreds of millions of Americans an opportunity to tell Joe Biden what they think about what he's done to our country and them. Rather than fix the problem, Joe has created many, many distractions. They include the trillions of dollars spent on COVID-19, billions upon billions of dollars spent on the war in Ukraine, tried to scare the American people with threats of communist China and Russia, discounting inflation as it ravages our country, the shortage of baby food and other food to the American people. But he isn't addressing the issues that are important to you. The significant increase in a gallon of milk and the even more significant increase in a gallon of gasoline has made it harder and harder for Americans to survive. Energy isn't just gasoline, which is about $5.10 a gallon, but it's also fuel oil and diesel fuel and natural gas. In some places in the country, people are paying over $6 a gallon for gasoline. Some areas are paying close to 8 Have you figured out that $6 a gallon gasoline will mean the average driver in a small car will be spending $100 a fill-up in this country? As the dial at the pump spins, people have to make choices about buying gas or buying food for their families. Food isn't bought because they need the gas to get to work. If they lose their job, they'll not be able to provide food for their families. Tough decisions for millions upon millions of Americans as they watch the dial spin and their money going out in record amounts. In November, we'll all be going to the polls and marking our ballots for the candidates that we think can help us out of this tremendous dilemma. If you see a D next to a person's name, before you check he's a Democrat, remember he's the one and his party is the one responsible for these high prices and inflation. When you go to vote, remember to vote Republican. In particular, in Oklahoma, you want to vote for Dr. Mark Sherwood, who's running for the nomination for governor in the state of Oklahoma. Get out and vote for Mark. It's important to the state. It's important to America. Welcome back. And we're continuing our conversation with our good friend of our program, John O'Connor from San Francisco, a distinguished attorney and author. And we're talking about the decision today on Roe versus Wade. Um, John, uh, during the break, you and I talked a little, just a briefly about um, that the original Roe versus Wade uh, was a significant um, part of the idea that the courts in general could legislate from the bench. And this was probably one of the biggest legislations from the bench in the history of the court. I would say yes, and especially in its uh, very complex scheme. Not only did they come up with a right that probably didn't exist, but they did it and they enforced that right with a very complicated scheme that is very characteristic of, of legislation. You have part A, B, C, D, and you go there, here, and there, and the other. It looks like a law that's passed by the legislature, not 
a, a, a statement of broad principle by a court as applied to a particular case, but rather a, an unnecessary and complex scheme that is really can be nothing more than legislation from the bench. Now, there's a second aspect to this, Dan, that is also important, is it is also a federal power grab. We have a, we have a, uh, a federal constitution here. We have a federal republic. Now, everyone wants to solve their problems and has no problems when they're, when they're in, in Washington yelling before the Supreme Court. They don't even consider the idea that maybe not every judicial decision should be federal and that all, all issues should be federalized. That's not the case. I mean, uh, the federal system is meant to uh, just adjudicate certain classes of, of uh, disputes, citizens of different states, for example, uh, and, and suing each other, certain federal statutes, you can sue under that. Now we think, oh, gee, everything should be uh, a federal, federal law and let's do it. And so there's uh, very much of a carelessness in Washington, both in terms of the, the legislature in Washington, which doesn't seem to abide by this distinction. Uh, they stretch the interstate commerce clause beyond its elastic limits. And to explain to your audience, uh, one of the ways you can regulate something nationwide is to say, oh, well, it affects interstate commerce. We're going to have the fair, uh, we're going to have the uh, Truth in Labeling Act uh, because it affects interstate commerce, because goods move in interstate commerce, therefore, we can regulate this. So they take interstate commerce as a basis under the Constitution for uh, issuing rulings. Now, maybe in the case of the labeling law, that makes sense. But what happens is uh, they use that hook as a way of not only legislating from the bench, but legislating as to the entire country, as to legislating from a federal bench as to matters that should be decided by state benches or state legislatures. So there's two ills in this whole thing. John, um, the, some of the dialogue today has been not so much about Roe versus Wade, but the power of the conservative side, the conservative majority in the court. And I'm wondering whether or not you think that the conservative majority is sending a message to the lower courts, don't legislate from the bench. Well, they're doing that for sure. I think they really have much sounder jurisprudence. But one of the things that's interesting about the conservative majority, and somehow there's the thought they're really just very traditional jurists, what they are. We call them conservative because they're just not willy-nilly progressives. But for instance, Gorsuch has sided with the so-called liberals many times so far, because he decides, and, and so is Coney Barrett, interestingly enough. Uh, these people, Kavanaugh has. So these people are not some sort of doctrinaire conservatives that are gonna march in, in lockstep. Uh, and that's the way things should be. You ought to have some play in the joints and you shouldn't have these blocks of votes that are casting concrete. And, and so, but they are sending a message as to these things about not legislating and especially to the lower district courts, uh, the federal district courts, they tend to do that. For instance, federal courts, especially in the age of Trump have decided that what they'll do is they'll get a case and they'll declare a nationwide injunction. No, wait a second. 
you're a district court in Podunk, Idaho, and you're going to declare an, a nationwide injunction. What, what do you, where do you get that jurisdiction? And so you often find these federal courts will try to <laughs> not only legislate, but legislate as to the entire country, as opposed to the case in front of the court. So I think the message will be sent not only to the state courts, but to the lower federal courts that let's have a little judicial humility. Part of the earmarks of, of being a judge is to be sufficiently humble and to not go beyond your skis. There are all sorts of principles in that. Judicial restraint, it's called. Uh, judicial humility. Uh, comity, that is to say, allowing another body like a state legislature to step in rather than you coming in and being the big sheriff in town let the other jurisdiction that may have power decide things. So all these principles are very traditional and people have put them aside in recent decades. And now hopefully they're coming back in favor because if you don't have those, we have a system that's just all about power and the courts are not supposed to be just about power. It's supposed to be about a set of principles and laws that yes, have flexibility, have play in the joints, but aren't simply uh, a political party uh, imposing its will on the populace once their party gets in. Uh, and hopefully that's what we're going to be doing in the future is we're going to be acting, the court's going to be acting like judges and not super legislators. You know, we had another uh, opinion from the court that came out yesterday, yesterday or Wednesday, I'm not sure which, uh, one of the two, and that was the concealed carry laws in the state of New York. And they overturned the local, the, the state of New York's decision on the criteria for granting licenses. And uh, uh, one of the, I, I guess one of the, the people in the quote licensing office, when a, a woman went in to apply for a permit for a handgun, she said to the person, um, well, I, I work late, I, I live alone. I have to go through, when I get off the subway, I have to go through a, a really bad part of town late at night uh, and I am afraid that I will be attacked and uh, I want the gun for protection. And the person said, nah, you're not gonna get it. Just arbitrary and capricious, you're not gonna get it. That that's, that's not enough of a reason that you should be able to have a gun. Yeah, you should know the person that's ready to kill you and right. point him out and give you his, give his address. Yes, and if he and he shot and kills you, he might in New York he might be out out within twenty four hours without bail because he right. was because he was uh, because of the law. There seems to be, and I don't know whether it's 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 um, incidental or a trend. We have the district attorney for the city of San Francisco being recalled. The one in Los Angeles is up for a possible recall. The one in Baltimore is up for recall. And these are all district attorneys that were campaigns were financed by one of George Soros's uh, nonprofits. Um, the, it appears that the American people are reacting to this incredible level of, of crime that's going on in the United States, physical crime, murders and rapes and break-ins and, 
thefts and the the mobs who are breaking into stores and stealing all the merchandise. Um, do you think that tides turn too, Judge? Well, what this is that is about that for sure. It's about crime, but it's also about the broader issue, and you see it in the schools and the school. Uh, decisions, for instance, in the election of Youngkin in Virginia. There's a lot of frustration that there are elites that are telling us what to do that has nothing to do with the political process. It's not as though we elected people to control us like this. Somebody comes along and really without people really voting on it or going to the polls, somebody just decides, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set up these administrative branches. Well, once the administrative branch gets something, they're little dictators. Uh, there's no real control over them. And the whole idea, this started with FDR, where you have all these agencies out there and, oh, it's so cool because these agencies are all experts. But what happens is we get controlled by people that really there's no accountability. They're often civil servants, can't be fired. Don't worry about the voters. They're gonna do whatever they darn well want to do. And I think people don't like that powerlessness uh, and there's no real, so yes, so you have a, a crime, you have the whole idea. And so it's against common sense. That's the other thing. The people that are doing this have their own agendas and oftentimes they're progressive agendas, they're social experimenters, but the regular people who want to live and I'll tell you, especially black people in, in um, high crime areas, they want to be protected. They want cops right there. They don't want people saying that we should defund the police. They don't want, they want their kids to go to school and be protected. And they don't want them being taught uh, sex education in first grade. And they don't want them talking about uh, this kind of trans or that kind of gender thing or anything. Uh, all of it goes down to the whole idea that there are a lot of people out there that have no concern about the citizens. You could argue that our whole educational system is uh, bad in most cities because the teachers union and their contributions to the politicians are controlling everything and not the parents who wanna to go to a school board meeting and be heard. They have no power. The people sitting there, no, they know there's no power. They're, they're in a union and they're protected by the politicians. And so now they can't really even have a voice in educating their own children. So there's a sense generally of powerlessness. Um, and yes, the crime is terrible. Uh, Gascon, the DA in <laughs> LA, left San Francisco just to step ahead of the posse. And he looks like a staunch conservative next to Boudin who just got booted. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's terrible, Dan, is, is I think Boudin is probably going to run again in the fall and, and has a good chance of getting elected because of San Francisco's ranked choice voting, which gives undue weight to the stride minority. Unbelievable. Um, <clears throat> we have about a minute left. Uh, I, uh, I wonder what your thoughts are about some of the cases that the court has taken, but will not opine until next year. Are any of them tickle your fancy, some things that are interesting? I've, I've looked at them, I've tried to get excited about them. They're really on more abstruse uh, things. I think they have meaning to the court. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, Gorsuch is big on tribal stuff. There's some things on the uh, on labor, but um, I, 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 
I don't see anything that's as big as the two that were decided today or yesterday and today. Yeah. And uh, and so I, I, I think those are sort of off the table. And as a Republican, I would have wished that, uh, at least as to the Roe v. Wade, I would have liked to seen this thing uh, get pushed out to the to the future a little bit. Yeah. We've been speaking with John O'Connor, a friend of the show, um, attorney from San Francisco, longtime servant of the people. John, how do people get your new book? Well, go on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com, The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. It's a, it's a blast. It's a blast. It just got reviewed in the American Thinker. Very good review. So I think people like it. Thank you, John. Dan, good talking to you. You bet. Take care. And we'll be right back. Okay. So, go okay. That was wonderful. Just terrific. Thanks for doing that. And uh, it's always just a pleasure to have you and your and your brain straighten me out. <laughs> Thank you. You're sir. in bad shape, Dan, if you're relying on me for your brains, but but I'm I'm complimented by it anyway. Thank you, sir. You take care. All right, take care. All right, bye. It's time for Black and White, a show that wants to bring all of us together talking again. It's time to hear from people who only want to deal with facts. It's time for you to re-engage in America. If you are interested in reaching our vast black and white network audience with your products or services, then contact Hollis Media Group at 1-855-673-8635. That's 1-855-673-8635 for more information on this great opportunity.